My name is James Peeps. If you haven't met me, and I'm saying happy December to you guys. You can't say happy Christmas yet because say happy December because it's pretty cool that it's December. Uh, and when December rolls round, we do our Advent series here at City Hope Church. And uh, Advent just means arrival. We sang a song um, just before uh, in the set that's called Arrival. That's what Advent means, it's a Latin word. And what we do is leading up to Christmas, where we've decided to celebrate Jesus' birth on 25th of December, we want to make sure that such a momentous thing, like the arrival of Jesus in the world, isn't a passing thought, and we just do a, a sermon there on the 24th on Christmas Eve and call it good, but rather fix our attention on Jesus in these weeks leading up, slow down from the world. If you were here last week, we need a cellar, we need a musical pause where we cut out from the busyness of life because how many of you are, are aware that the end of year is probably one of the busiest times of the year as we try to squeeze in every end of year event, the friends we didn't see and now we feel bad, now we've got to squeeze them in, the life admin, everything gets squeezed in and somehow what happens very often is we tick all of our boxes and then we miss Jesus and we miss the opportunity to reflect on the arrival of Jesus. And so Advent is about us cutting back and paying attention to this most momentous thing. And as we look at Advent, uh, we're thinking about something that we've heard of before in the arrival of Jesus. And so sometimes because we sentimentally, we know the one-liners, we've heard the verses, sometimes these things wash over us and we don't pay proper attention. We don't let it have a hold on our hearts. Um, but this morning as I was uh, being dictated what I need to do by my 10-month-old Caleb, uh, because I don't know if other parents in the room can relate, but uh, he's in the phase now where I can't put him down. I can't lie down. I have to carry him literally all the time. And the moment I even think about putting him down, he cries. Even if I bend my knees and he's not aware, ah! just like as, as you do that, I have to carry him literally everywhere. And he just points with his finger. So he's just a little dictator and I'm the two of us. And he just points, and then I've got to take him there, and then he feels whatever the arbitrary thing is that's interesting him now. And this morning I was in the garden, and he was pointing at the tree that he always points at. Then we go to the tree, then he touches the tree. Like this for like a good five minutes. I'm not going to do it with you for as long as it really takes. And then he points at another bush and the bri, and then he kicks over the bri, then I'm going to pick up the bri. It's a whole routine. And then he gets to the bush that he's at for like a good 15 minutes. And I don't know what it is about this specific bush, there's no leaves. No, there are leaves. There's no flowers. It's just a plain old bush. But he loves this bush. And he shakes the leaves and he looks at it like he's never seen it before. And he's in awe and wonder. And he laughs and he giggles. And I'm like, what is this boy about, honestly? And what it reminds me of when I think about Advent is what we really need when we come to scriptures that we've actually seen before is we need eyes like a child that are capable of actually seeing the details that all of us take for granted. And I think if I could put on Caleb's perception for one day, it would be a wonder for me to be able to see things as if I've never seen them before and be in awe and wonder. And with Advent, that's what we want to be doing. We might be aware of these passages, but are we in awe of what Jesus has done? That's the goal. And so we're going to look at this and we pray that the, by the Spirit's power that we'll see things in these passages we've never seen before as He gives us spiritual eyes to discern that. And so 
I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 1. If you like to turn in your Bibles to there, you can turn to there, Matthew 1. If you like to follow in the Sky Bible, you can do that as well. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk through the passage and, 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 and lift out a few things before we get into our points. So Matthew 1 verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Uh, this is going to be from the father's side. I don't know if you know, the mother and the father often have a pretty different perspective on the day that the child is born. My wife's version of Caleb's birth and my version are very, very vastly different. Uh, and so here we're going to hear from Joseph's perspective. He's not really the father. We'll get into that later. Uh, but Joseph's perspective is here in Matthew. Luke's perspective is, uh, sorry, Mary's perspective is in Luke. And so the birth of Jesus took place in this way. And that word birth, is actually the same word that comes in Matthew 1.1, which is how the gospel opens when it says the book of the genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, unlike many other religions where the arrival of the Savior happens within legend and mystical origins, what Matthew here is saying is our Savior, Jesus, actually arrives on the scene within the framework of human history. And you can read Matthew 1.1 at the genealogy, the, the forefathers of, of, of Jesus and how he came down from that line, out from Abraham, that, that great man of faith, and out from the king's line of David. And in the annals of human history, unlike every other faith, Jesus, the savior of the world, is born. And so that's where when he makes the statement, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, he's saying, well, we've looked at the, the origins of Jesus as far as human history is concerned. Now let's look at the most immediate of his arriving on earth. And it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Big word, we don't really use that often, betrothed. We know about engagement. But in our day and age, people can be engaged and they can break it off. And there's no legal ramifications, just the cool. They broke up. But in this day, to be betrothed was a legally binding agreement. So if you were betrothed, there was a one-year situation where there was legal documents and then the, 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 the bride-to-be was with, the, with her parents and they were under her watchful eye. And if you were to have to break off betrothal, you'd have to get a divorce. And so... There was very specific terms for divorce, as it is in the Old Testament and as it is in this age. And one of those terms would be, naturally, if the bride-to-be were to, let's say, sleep with somebody outside of that betrothal, that would be grounds for not only should, can they be divorced, but they should be divorced. Now, with all that in mind, here comes the drama. Now... The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It's pretty scandalous because when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, very serious, before they came together, right? What does that mean? That's a euphemism. Before they were able to consummate their marriage, do what married people do, right? Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Right? Joseph is well aware he has not come together 
with Mary. He would know. But he knows he hasn't. And now Mary's got a little bump, right? And he must have been like, Mary, what's going on there? What's going on there? And Mary, I, it doesn't say in Scripture exactly what she says. But no doubt she would have said something and he would have been like, you must have had sex with somebody, Mary. Come on. You can't fool me. We know how this thing works. We understand biology. They didn't have the word biology. They understand how this thing works. When Mary must have been like, no, I was, it, was, it was God. It was God who uh, made me pregnant. And so Joseph, it seems, from what we can infer from Scripture, did not buy that story. I don't blame him, by the way, just so that you do know. Uh, it's uh, one of those conversations that when we get to heaven, I want to hit playback and see the best marriage fight that ever happened in the history of the world. I'm pregnant by God. Yeah, sure. Um, so it says this, that uh, she was seen to be a child of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph obviously did not believe this story. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to, to divorce her quietly. Being a just man, meaning that what God says must go and justice demands in the law of God, she's got to be divorced. So being a just man, he resolves to divorce. But justice in the Bible often comes with mercy as well. If you're just the way that God is just, there's a compassion that he has. So he has to divorce her, but he doesn't want to put her to shame by going out to the courts and embarrassing Mary. So he resolves to do this thing under the books quietly so that she might not live a life of scandal in Nazareth. Because please understand, this is a small town and people can do maths. So they can count. You got married on this day and three months later you have a child. It would have been a scandal and she would have been shamed. So he resolves to divorce her quietly, being a just man. So that's so far the Christmas story. Yay! Joy to the world. What a great Jerry Springer show this Christmas is, you know. And so nothing great to celebrate as yet. But that's verse 19. Verse 20 is a but God verse. God's about to come and speak into this mess. And he says, so it says, but as he, that's Joseph. As he considered these things, that's divorcing Mary, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Angels are very common in the days of Jesus. There's a big increase of angelic activity when the Messiah comes on the scene. Now, these angels are not these floaty things with wings that you often see depicted. They are winged angels. They are the seraphim cherubim in heaven. They are with God. But the angels, the messengers that God sends are can be mistaken as another human being. According to the book of Hebrews, you may have even had them around for dinner and you did not realize it was an angel, right? So angels were often very intimidating, human-like messengers, so big that most of the time they rock up, their first line is, do not fear, because they cause a lot of fear and they themselves are the problem. Uh, they cause the fear. Now, as he luckily had an angel in a dream, right? So in a dream, the angel appears to him. An angel is a messenger from God. That's literally what it means in the Greek. A messenger appears and says some stuff. Yes, here it is. As he considered these things, an angel appeared to him in the dream saying, Joseph, son of David, 
Just pause right there. Didn't say this at the eight. That's important. When it says son of David, David was not his father's name, just so that you do know. David is an ancestor of Joseph, a king that out of that line was going to come a king one day that was going to rule even better than David the king, the Messiah, Jesus. So when the angel says, Joseph, son of David, he's calling him to remember something of an ancient promise about a king that was going to be born. Just log that. It says, son of David, do not fear or don't shrink back from taking Mary to be your wife. For what's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Right? He confirms that theory. Verse 21, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then verse 22 says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, the prophet Isaiah, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Right, so this is insane because the angel rocks up there and says, please, it's not what it looks like. She did not have a side piece and she didn't have an affair. This is a thing that God did. And I want you to remember, this is a thing that concerns the promised king of kings who would come. So marry her, what, just carry on with life, marry her. This is part of God's plans and purposes. And so the angel reminds them of this statement from Isaiah, and there's two crazy promises, and those are going to be my two uh, headings for today. There was one promise about the virgin birth, which is extremely significant, and the promise of God dwelling with us, extremely significant. So firstly, the promise of the virgin birth. Now, I understand the fact that we don't hear lots of sermons about the virgin birth. In fact, I can't remember one in this church. Maybe there was one many, many years ago. But this is extremely significant in our faith. So significant that the early church, when they wrote what's called the Apostles' Creed, which is an early church's summary of what Christians must believe. It's very concise. They don't write a lot in there. And yet this made the cut. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This is extremely important to the point that they thought if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. Now, let's take a look at why is this significant. Well, I'm going to take you to through just five things that I think are significant about that. The first reason why the significance of the virgin birth is there is that it shows us that God keeps His promises. Because the prophecy that was being referenced, Isaiah 9-7, in Matthew, is, is a long time ago when King Ahaz was concerned that, in fact, the kingly line of David would fall. And Isaiah, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means that when the virgin gave birth, it wasn't like a thing that we plucked out of thin air and it was a legend that we've created. But it's in fact been God's ancient plan from times gone by that God had seen that this is the way that he should see fit. And in fact, Matthew says in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
And if you read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll be astounded at the number of Old Testament references. I believe it's over 50 references directly to the Old Testament, over 70 that are inferred. And a lot of the time you'll read all this took place to fulfill what was written in the scriptures or what was said by the prophet. And when we see the virgin birth, I don't just want us to think, oh yeah, that's something that happened that one day when Jesus was born. That's something that God had foreordained, planned, and that when the virgin conceived and when the Holy, when God conceived of Jesus and the virgin gave birth, that that was a promise that God had made a thousand years before, not quite, but almost that long. And this is a fulfillment of promise to show us that when we come here to Christmas, when we take our seats at Joseph's side of the table, when we come from his perspective, one of the things that the virgin birth teaches us is that Christmas is about God fulfilling his promise that he promised the Messiah, he promised it thousands of years ago, and what we celebrate today is God is faithful to his word. It's not fairy lights, it's not Christmas trees, it's faithful God doing what he said he would, and what he said he would do is magnificent, and the virgin birth teaches us that. The second thing that I want to say teaches us is that Jesus is God's own son. This is so important if this doctrine of God, Jesus being God's own son, doesn't stand, we don't have a Christian faith. But this has to be in place by the virgin birth. Understand that what we see here is that Joseph is not the dad of Jesus. Yes, he's married to Mary, but he's not the father of Jesus. In fact, the Bible's careful to make that point. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, uh, he, Joseph is being addressed and it says, Rise and take the child... And his mother, that's Mary, and flee to Egypt. Why does it not say take your child and your wife and flee to Egypt? Because the point is being made here, and it happens again four verses later in Matthew chapter 2, and it happens again throughout, that please understand, this son was not born from Joseph because the purposes of this child is not, you're not going to be Joseph Jr. This is the son of God alone. And guess what? There's no other faith out there that claims this. Every other faith has many different religious teachers that have arose from many circumstances. But we have a unique claim that Jesus, who is our Savior, was God's very own Son. And we see this in other parts of the Scriptures as well. We see uh, Jesus understanding this very concept. Now, let's first go to the naming thing. In verse 21 of the passage we were looking at, it says, she shall bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus. And for parents, we get to name our kids, we have authority over them, we created them. But Joseph did not create Jesus, and so God comes and speaks and says, guess what? That's my son. You will call him Jesus. I'm giving him the name because he's my son. And that's what God says. In fact, he does it also with John the Baptist. There's times where God says, no, nope, this shall be his name. And God is making a very clear statement. This is my son, Jesus. And Jesus knows this, by the way. There was an incident in Luke chapter 2 where Jesus is 12 years old and gets, goes away. Well, he doesn't get lost. He's not lost. But the parents think he's lost. The parents can't find him. Uh, and I'm sure that they were very, very anxious about where this boy is. And eventually they find the guy. I almost call him a brat, but that would be blasphemous. Uh, they find this little boy that I'm sure that they were irritated with in the temple. 
And can you imagine as a parent, you've been looking everywhere and here he is just chilling in the temple. And he says to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? My father's house. My house is not, my father is not Joseph and that's not my house. My house is the temple where God lives. I would have been like Jesus. Don't get all theological with me. Go straight to your room. I don't want to hear another omnipotent word from your mouth. I would have been livid with him. He's always bloody right, Jesus. I would have been, I'm, I'm much happier just parenting a sinner personally. So, so yeah, that's Jesus. Jesus knows who his father is and it ain't Joseph. It's the God in heaven. And so when we come to this stage and we sit around the Christmas table from Joseph's perspective, we learn something. That Christmas is not actually about a, a child being born so much as it's about a son being given by the father. For unto us a child is born, unto us a child, a son is given. This is a gift from the father. Christmas is about the father's generosity to us and his gift is his one and only son. And we learn it from the virgin birth. And the third thing is that we learn from the virgin birth that our God is a supernatural God. If you're going to be one of those people that tries to explain away the miracles in the Bible and guts out the supernatural, you're going to have a hard time. There's not going to be much Bible left uh, for you to read because the claim of the Bible from beginning to end is that our God is God. He does what only God can do. That the Bible is not a book about how to live a good life. It's not a book. It's not a you book. It's a God book. It's a book about God, who he is, what he does, and what he does is supernatural. He made everything by the power of his mouth. Everything exists because of him. And he decides to bend the laws of nature with the power of his pinky when he decides to. Because he is God, the supernatural, that's just how he rolls. And the virgin birth is a miracle and we're supposed to see it and rejoice and say that's the kind of god that i serve that with god with man these things are impossible but nothing is impossible with god he is the god of the supernatural we see it because a virgin conceived and will bear a son what a magnificent truth i absolutely love that this is another one of those moments where we go that's only god when we sit at joseph's seat at the table we realize it's not about carols it's not about all the frilly stuff on the side, it's about the supernatural intervention of God, the miraculous God that we serve. The fourth thing that I want to say that the virgin birth is significant for is that it teaches us that humanity needs God to come and save us. It's apparent from the fact that we couldn't produce our own savior, that our sin is so horrendous and our corruption so complete that we can't find our way to God. We can't seek him out and somehow get our way to him. But rather God had to come down, be conceived of God. Jesus had to come down and save and rescue us from the mess that we have found ourselves in. To such a degree that what we find at the end of the day, that Christmas is a very awesome thing to celebrate. Because it tells us that it's not about the get-togethers. It's not about the jingles. It's about the fact that we were lost. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no hope. We were completely defiled by sin with absolutely no outset of knowing God, loving Him. But yet in the midst of that, Christmas is about, but God came down. He dirtied Himself from glory to dirt to a manger 
dirtied himself, put on skin for the likes of us to come to the Father. Hallelujah. Praise his name. And that's what the virgin birth teaches us. Fifth thing is this, that the virgin birth teaches us Jesus is truly divine and truly human. He was conceived of God, divine, born of a mother, human. These two things together, if we don't have them, we don't have a savior. Now, Jesus was human. And when I say human, he wasn't 50%. He was 100% human. It says, uh, I'm just going to run you through some scriptures. You can look at the, up the references on the right at home. But he grew in strength, wisdom, and stature. He learned obedience through what he suffered. He drank, slept, grew tired. He became thirsty, hungry. He felt physically weak. He was born of a mother. Those are things that are essentially human. He was dependent. He was just, in some respects, like you and me. But on the other hand, Jesus defies the normal categories that we know about humanity because Jesus, at the very same moment as all those things were true, he was completely and fully and truly God himself. That he did things that displayed that he was God. He claimed to be God. And at the end of the day, he was God from before he took on flesh, while he took on flesh, after he took on flesh. He's been God, is God, will be God forever and ever. But what we need to understand about this putting on flesh or putting on skin but is that he actually added humanity onto his divinity. That at no point did he subtract from his divinity or godliness, but he added onto that limitation. He didn't abandon his godliness. He limited his godliness by putting on skin. But this is really important because if he wasn't human, he couldn't stand in our place at the cross. He couldn't atone for our sins. He can't relate to our weakness. But if he's not God, he couldn't defeat sin, death, and the devil. What we needed was not a human to come and be a prophet like the likes of Muhammad. What we also didn't need was just a God in heaven. What we needed was the God-man. And if you don't have the God-man, you don't have salvation that gets gifted to you. Every other religion is like, you do this, you do that. I'm going to point you to the way. But only Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, because he is the God-man. He buys salvation for us. And that's only possible because of divine conception, human birth. So without the virgin birth, we just don't have a Christian faith. So it's very significant. But there was another great promise made, and that was the promise of God with us. And I've just been speaking about that with the divine and human thing. The promise comes, behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is so massive. Um, John chapter 1 has one of the most profound statements on this. It says that the word became flesh. And that word is a capital W that's speaking about Jesus, the Logos. This word, Jesus, divine, became flesh and dwelt among us. You might have heard preachers as well say, he tabernacled among us because that's the word there. That in the Old Testament, the God was with them through the tabernacle in the wilderness. But then John uses the word there in order to say that the immortal Jesus, the God, God himself, came and he set up his tent in our neighborhood as humanity. This is a crazy, crazy thing to think that the immortal God would set up his tent among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. That word that he put on flesh, the word became flesh, is a significant one. In Greek, we've got two words that we use for body. Soma, which is the glorified, dignified body, like the gladiators. And then we have sarx, which is this word, which means our bones, meat, and flesh, our bowels and smells. And it says Jesus condescended from heaven immortal and put on smelly skin and identified like you and me. This is a crazy, crazy, crazy truth. So crazy that I want us to meditate on it just a little bit. That in the spirit of Advent, with the time that we have left, I just want us to meditate or think about this truth that God dwelt among us. Like Caleb touching that tree for the millionth time and seeing something amazing in it. I'm praying that as we meditate on the lyrics of Arrival, which I believe is an amazing song, that something will log in our heart that Jesus is worthy of worship because he dwelt among us. So I'm going to read some of these lyrics to you that we've been singing. We sang, who is God that he would take our frame, the artisan inside the paint? I want you to think about that, that God, Jesus, created everything that was. He's the artisan. He's the artist that created everything by the power of who he was. And one day he decided he's going to climb inside the paint that he created. Or breathe the very breath, his breath, the very air his breath sustains. I want you to think about that because Colossians says that everything exists by God upholding everything by the power of his might. That the reason you're breathing is because Jesus is upholding your life. The reason why there's air is because He's allowing it to be there. He breathed breath into our lungs. And even though He is the one that allows us to have breath, to breathe, to live, He breathed the very breath that His power sustains. This is humility like we've never known it before. I, I find it mind-blowing. It says, the one who has no start and no end. That's Jesus. The same yesterday, today, forever. Has no beginning or end. The one who knows no start and no end. Became confined in time and taste. Imagine you're outside of time. And then you limit yourself into the present. The everlasting God. The great I am. In the mercy of a mother's hands. Could it be that the great I am. The all-powerful self-existent, never created one, could shrink himself down so, so small that mother could drop him on the floor. That the monarch of stars, the ruler of all of the stars, would be nursed by mother. That the one who's the bread of heaven would become hungry. That the one who is the fountain of life would say, I thirst. This is crazy stuff. The same sentiment comes from, from an early church dude called St. Ephraim. He says, God who measures the sky with the width of his hand lies in the manger as large as a hand's width. Did you get that? That's insane. He who contains the sea in the hollow of his hand experienced his birth in a cave. The sky is full of his glory and the manger full of his splendor this is crazy it says we in the song we were singing come let us hail his arrival 
the God of creation. Royalty, king of kings, robed in the flesh he created. Jesus the maker has made himself known. All hail the infinite infant. The infinite infant God. The king of kings, limited by the flesh he created. We've just got bodies Jesus gave us. The body you have, Jesus gifted to you. He made it, you live in it. Jesus made a skin body and then he put himself into it. I don't know. I don't know if you guys find this mind-blowing. I just find it mind-blowing because the infinite became an infant. This is the humility or what we call in theology the condescension of Jesus. He condescended. He came down. He came down, limited himself. And that's what we celebrate. The theologian Sam Storms. Oh, this one puts me on fire. He says, the word became flesh. God became human. The invisible became visible. The untouchable became touchable. Eternal life experienced temporary death. The transcendent one, he drew near. The unlimited became limited. The unbreakable became fragile. Spirit became matter. Eternity came into time. The independent became dependent. The almighty one became weak. The loved became hated. The exalted became humble. Glory himself was subjected to shame. Fame turned to obscurity. From inexpressible joy to unimaginable grief. From a throne to a cross. From a ruler to being ruled. From power to weakness. I want us just to look at that quote and understand that we must reorient ourselves around this time. That we don't get caught up in the frivolous stuff of Christmas. But we look at that quote and we say that's what it's about. It's about the one who went from a throne then he came to a cross. It's about the limited, the unlimited one making himself limited. It's about Jesus condescending for our sake and for our benefits. It's the incarnation. Jesus putting on flesh. That's what it's all about. But even for us, as we know that in our heads, Alexander, uh, Oregon from Alexandria, he says this, does it profit us that Christ was born of Mary in Bethlehem if he is not born also by faith in our soul? Many of our family members this Christmas are going to have some decorations and they're going to celebrate the fact that Mary gave birth to a son and it's all for nothing because Jesus is not born in their heart by faith. And that is the biggest waste of time. If Jesus is not born in your heart by faith, don't worry about the carols. Don't worry about the decorations because those are just frivolous things. The real heart of the matter is Jesus came and entered in this world so that he can live in your heart by faith. And that's the key. So I want to open up the invitation to anyone here in this gathering that might be hearing this message and thinking, I don't think of myself as a Christian. Do you believe in the claims that we've been saying today? Do you believe in Jesus, that he came down, that he was God himself, that he came, condescended, died as a human, was raised again, defeated death in the grave? Because if you do, there's an invitation that Jesus has for you in Revelation 3.20. He says, if I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and him with me. There's a seat for you at the Christmas table as well. The seat is there because of what Jesus has done. All we need to do is repent. That means turn from our ways. Face Jesus 
and give our all to him because he gave our all, his all for us. And by faith, Jesus will be born for us in our soul. But I also want to throw out a challenge. That was for those of you who might not say you're a Christian. For those of us who do say we're Christians, I want to throw out the challenge that yes, Jesus, the miracle is that the infinite became finite, that Jesus came down. But Jesus has chosen not only to reveal himself through his son, although he did it perfectly, he's chosen to reveal himself in this world through you and through me. That Jesus has chosen to take up residence through the Holy Spirit in you and me. And that we're the only Bible some people are going to read this Christmas. And God really wants us to be his ambassadors, his representatives, his mouthpieces. That what, where we go and what we do is a display port that shows Jesus is well alive. He's alive in me and I live to proclaim it. And so I want to stir us. I want to stir us on that. That, uh, what did I say? I've got a bunch of stirring things. That we would be caring for finding the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, release the prisoner, to build this nation, to encourage the weary, to befriend the friendless, to stir the stagnant, to bring peace where there's war, to strengthen the weak, to bring comfort to the distressed, to defend the marginalized, embrace the outcast, embolden the fearful, bring hope to the forlorn, because what's at stake is that people need their seat with Jesus. And part of how that's going to happen is you and me, his mouthpieces. And so this Christmas, I want us just to be emboldened in the area of family, because that's where we are probably going to end up. Not all of us love Christmas. Some of us don't have a great Christmas table vibe going on. But the big deal is Jesus has a table open, and that's the one that matters. God's calling us to be active in having people come to that table. And so as we conclude today, and we think about as we sat in Joseph's seat on the table, we found that the virgin birth, absolutely vital, teaches us a lot about without this, we can't have a Christian faith. But also we learned that God dwelt among us. The band can join me, by the way. Um, that God dwelt among us. That he was truly man and truly human. He was Emmanuel, God with us. That, that baby in the major was the God-man. So that he could live on our behalf. That he could die, be resurrected, and we could be saved. What a wonderful truth. But it all starts, just like Sierra taught us when she was leading worship earlier. It all started with when Jesus was born. And so we want to reflect on these words from arrival and sing them back. Will you stand with me as we choose to respond with arrival? I want these words to become a song in our hearts. That the one who holds the stars in the creases of his hands, that's how powerful he is, is the one who holds my heart like a mother once held his. That the one who knows what lies when space has run its course. You know how we think of space as eternal, like never ending infinite? Jesus knows when space has run its course and he knows what lies. He's the one that embraced a baby's mind. Now I can know my God. God embraced our frame when he graced the world that he made. All hail the divine in a manger. Love embraced our fate when the playwright took the stage. All hail the arrival of our maker. And so these words are profound. And this mystery is profound. And so in honor of that, let's lift up praise to the only one who's worthy. The unimaginable actually happened. 
the incomprehensible actually transpired, that the infinite became finite. All hail him. And so we're going to say all hail King Jesus. We're going to say that that baby in the manger, that's the King of Kings. That's the Lord of Lords. The one that was in a mother's arms. That was the Savior of the world who knows the beginning from the end. That's the eternal great I am. And so if that's the case, and if you believe that in your heart, it's time to lift up our hands, lift up our voices, and worship Him as the only one worthy. Let's do that.